Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. Hi, Heather. We're here today with Dr. Jim Fritz. He received his PhD in metallurgical engineering in 1987 from Penn State. And in 1988, he joined DuPont as a research engineer where he investigated corrosion problems associated with the storage of nuclear waste at the Savannah River site. He worked for DuPont for a while after that. Then he went to Allegheny Ludlam, where he helped produce stainless steels, nickel alloys, and titanium. Then he went to TMR Stainless. And now he currently works part-time as a consultant for the Nickel Institute and the International Molybdenum Association. We're really glad to have you here with us today, Jim. It's great to have you as our guest. And our topic today is duplex stainless steels. But in honor of you starting your career at the Savannah River nuclear site, I thought we should start off with a couple of good classic nuclear jokes to break the ice. Oh, hope said. <laughs> so what did the big boy atomic bomb say to the nuclear bomb when they met? I have no idea. Nuke, I am your father. <laughs> hey, Jim, did you hear about the nuclear engineer who got promoted? No. He was a real aficionado. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that might be enough nuclear jokes, Heather. I wanted to do one more. <laughs> hey, Jim, did you know that nuclear plants are vegan? I didn't know that. A hundred percent plant produced. <laughs> so, Jim, I just want to mention for all of our listeners that Jim and I actually worked together on a project with another. MTI colleague, Kira Alawalia, a few years ago, we actually produced a duplex stainless steel atlas of microstructures book that is pretty amazing. It actually has metallography microstructures for all of the grades of duplex stainless steels in all of its product forms, including castings. We looked at base metal, heat affected zones, and welds in both properly aged and solution annealed alloys and in over-aged alloys. So we intentionally over-aged some of the duplex stainless steels to look at those microstructures and look for sigma and the other phases that form and show and discuss how to really get good metallography because as many of you know, that's not easy with duplex stainless steels to get good quality metallographic images and etchings. So it was a real pleasure to work with Jim on that project and that book is available. It's unfortunately not widely available to the public, but it is available to MTI members. So it's a really excellent resource. And I'm not aware of anything else out there in industry close to it that is that comprehensive and gives you a way to really look at your microstructures and compare them to what it ought to be. I would add it's a very attractive book too. It'd be a good coffee <laughs> book if you don't know what you're looking at, but you just want something pretty to put on your table. It looks really good on the <laughs> coffee table. <laughs> As you were talking about it, Heather... I had flashbacks of the first time Jim Pellegrino sent me these stack of images with not because <laughs> like, how are we going to make an atlas off? I know. <laughs> I know. Jim and Hero were the ones that really added a ton of interpretation of all of those images, kind of explaining what you were seeing in these metallographic. I don't know what happened with the lab we chose, but they, Jim Pellegrino gave us lovely metallography, but they did not give us any support on the technical <laughs> side, which I was disappointed in. And then along comes the Atlas of the Nickel 276. 276. And they provided all kinds of technical support for that atlas. So <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, me. 
Well, either way, regardless, you and Hira, um, we, we managed to salvage well, that yeah, project no, I, and come up with a really yeah, good project. We met down at Hira's and, and spent some time sorting through that thing. Yeah. We sure did. All right. Well, we're here to talk about duplex stainless steels, which are such an interesting alloy. So can you start off by just explaining what duplex stainless steels are, Jim? Yes. Uh, duplex stainless steels essentially are one of the family of stainless steels. And their basic characteristic is that they have microstructure that consists roughly of 50% austenite phase and 50% ferrite phase. And that's what separates them from the other stainless steel families, such as austenitic, sulfuritic, And that's basically what they are. I want to ask a real quick question about the microstructure. When you see a typical microstructure in the literature, it looks like a bunch of hot dogs floating in a sea of mustard, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is so delicious. But I think it's probably more accurate to describe it as a sea of pancakes floating in a sea of syrup, right? Yeah. And what yeah. you see there, is that microstructure is for rot products, and these alloys are hot work where both phases are present. So then you string out the austenite and ferrite phases. So what you have is a matrix of ferrite and then the austenite, which also appears as long, flat austenite stringers or what have you. Yeah. Okay. And so given that, I guess duplex is anisotropic. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Their properties can differ depending on the direction relative to that rolling direction. Now, when you are talking about cast products that were not hot worked, then they have more equiax grains that you're familiar with. Okay, interesting. And let's just explain like the advantages. I mean, austenitic stainless steels are susceptible to fluoride stress corrosion cracking and other types of stress corrosion cracking. Ferritic stainless steels don't have the ductility. By combining this 50-50 grain structure, you kind of get the best of both worlds and have less tendency to stress crack. You have more increased resistance to stress cracking. Oh, that's right. I mean, when you combine the two phases, you do get some of the benefits of both phases. And if you look at advantages and disadvantages of using a duplex, some of the advantages would be they are much more resistant to chloride stress corrosion cracking than the austenitic grades. They tend to have a yield strength that is very high typically about twice that of a 316 austenitic stainless steel. And because they use less nickel, they do tend to be, for the same corrosion resistance, a little less costly per pound. And also with the higher strength, you can capitalize on using a thinner wall section, which also can be a cost advantage. So those would be the primary advantages of the duplex stainless steels. If you want, I can go through some of the disadvantages. Yeah, let's just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> when you go to alloy producers, they always are keen to tell you the advantages, but it's always good to get the disadvantages because that gives you the boundaries of like, these are your guardrails of, of when they become not the right choice. The primary disadvantages, I would say, would be one, they uh, reduce formability. So you can't do the same kind of bends and things like that that you would do with an austenitic. Another disadvantage is because they have, you know, 50% of their microstructure is the ferrite phase, they are not as resistant to uh, hydrogen embrittlement. So you're more likely to see hydrogen problems if that's a potential in your environment. 
They also have a maximum service temperature. And in North America, where we do our construction to the ASME code, Section 8, most of these grades would have a maximum service temperature of 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Another disadvantage is some of these grades are relatively new. And because of that, you might not be able to find all the product forms you want on a distributor's floor or inventory. So availability of some of these grades may be an issue. When you talk about less formability, can you give a real example of that? Like, or, or you know, a, a real life example, like on dished heads, are there certain types of dished heads that you can't make with duplex? The dished heads, uh, yeah, there could be some issues there, but where the most likely example that gets quoted is plate frame heat exchangers. You can make those plate out of the austenitic grades, be it 316 or a 6 Molly super austenitic stainless steel, but you really can't form those plates from the duplex grades. Okay, interesting. There have been some discussions about forming like those thick dished heads though and difficulties with welding. Can you talk a little bit about that and about you know how that can be best managed and what kinds of issues you can run into? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, the, the formability is not as good. So if you are going to do any kind of cold forming operation, it may involve a lot more intermediate solution anneals to get rid of stresses. So there's those issues. If you're forming a welded sheets to make the head, and uh, there has been some issues, particularly with the lean duplex stainless steels that have very high yield strength, as well as a higher work hardening coefficient. If you weld those with a filler that has lower strength and a lower work hardening coefficient, when you go to form them, you could uh, concentrate the stress in the weld and have premature failures during the forming operation. So that could be an issue as well. Well, that sounds really, really bad. So what would the solution be to that? Well, you would want to choose a weld or a filler material that has uh, uh, properties that better match the base metal or try to avoid having a weld in the sheets that are going to form the head if that's possible. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So it sounds like it's possible to manage through these issues. Yeah. I mean, really, for the most part, duplex stainless steels have been used across all industry sectors and for making most of the components that austenitic stainless steels make. Jim, you mentioned uh, pricing as one, and, and I think you specifically mentioned nickel, there being less nickel in, in duplex, and that's one of the reasons that it prices out favorably. When you look at the compositions, it's it's not that much of a drop in nickel, right? It's 30% less or something like that. So I just kind of wanted to understand that. I know you're you're very first in that area. So I was just kind of curious, you know, what drives nickel price? And is it that much more than the other components that, that it has that big of an impact on the overall price of the alloy? Yeah. And it, it does get complicated because, I mean, if you look at it, say a 2205, which is the most widely used duplex, has roughly, you know, a nickel content that's approaching 5%. If you look at a 304, you know, it's, it's 8% or so. So there is, you know, a, a lower amount of nickel. However, it, that doesn't factor in, there could be added costs in the mill to make 2205 to the same thickness. So if you're making a very thin sheet material, it's going to cost more to produce that thin sheet material than an austenitic. 
So when you look at it, yeah, the, the nickel content is a slight advantage on a, on a price per pound. The big cost savings comes when you can use the added strength to reduce the thickness of material. That's where the real money is involved. And if you look at the ASME uh, Section 8 code or the European EN 13.445 code, generally if you were to build a pressure vessel or tank with austenitic versus duplex, you could probably reduce your wall thickness by about 30%, which is a significant savings. Okay. I've seen it used sometimes when your traditional 304, 316 doesn't work due to stress cracking or some exposure yeah. to chlorides. And so rather than alloying all the way up to a six molly or a hastaloy, you can just go to duplex. It's sort of that one step up, not a significant increase in price, but alleviates yeah. a potential problem. You, you bring up a good point. And, and what I've seen over the years, the two driving forces for increasing the amount of duplex that gets used would be the stress corrosion cracking properties that you just mentioned, Heather, and the strength advantage that could translate into reduced wall thicknesses. And those are the two that drive the use of duplex. So, you know, pressure vessels, tank applications, or hot piping systems, those would be areas where people would certainly be looking at duplex stainless steel as, as a replacement candidate of the austenitic grades. So you can see that duplex is uh, more than twice as strong in terms of tensile strength as the austenitic grades. Uh, that is a really significant difference and advantage. I don't recall seeing duplex threaded fasteners. Is that a is that an application for duplex? Are people doing that or is there a reason not? Yeah. First of all, the twice as strong probably applies more to the yield strength than the tensile strength. But yeah, over the years, people have started using duplex for fasteners. If there's any disadvantage, it might be uh, if you couple it to the wrong materials, you might be susceptible to a galvanic action and charge hydrogen which would uh, certainly be a downside. But uh, short of that, because of their higher yield strength, they are being used as fasteners. I don't know that the availability is nearly as great as austenitic, but it's certainly something that has been developed over the years with more use of duplex for the fasteners. Okay, I know it is that you list. Yeah. Yeah. In my industry, uh, stress corrosion cracking is a huge issue. And, uh, and so we, uh, really get nervous about austenitic fasteners, but, uh, duplex would be a very good alternative. Yeah. And, and with the higher strength comes better fatigue properties as well, which is another advantage for that application. Mm -hmm. Jim, can you go through the various grades of, of duplex? I know I'm guilty of this. When I think duplex, I think of 2205. And in reality, it, it's a much larger class of materials than that. Yeah, and what I will do, because there's so many grades, I won't try to list every one, but the, basically the duplex family gets subdivided into groups. So on the low side of alloying content would be the lean duplex stainless steels. And these alloys have a corrosion resistance that's above 304 and typically approaches that of a 316. So I probably the most widely used would be the 2101 alloy, but there's many others by other producers. So I, I probably shouldn't single out just one because it wouldn't be fair to other producers. 
but you know um, you just did i know <laughs> I, I i i thought i thought i probably should have done that <laughs> and then as you move up there's the uh what is often called the standard grades and that would include the 2205 which is by far the most widely used duplex stainless steel and above that you would have super duplex stainless steels these would be alloys uh well the 2507 things like that and they have a corrosion resistance that approaches that of a six molly super austenitic stainless steel and then over the last few years there's been a category above the super duplex that's called hyper duplex and they have a you know the best corrosion resistance because they're so highly alloyed they're very difficult to produce and Basically, they're only produced in uh, tubing, I believe, at this point. Okay. Because of the difficulty of avoiding some of the detrimental phases during the production process. And when you say they're hard to produce, that makes me expect they're probably hard to weld as well. Yeah, they would be. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So can we go ahead and jump in and talk about welding for a minute? Because that is one of the things that really needs to be managed, particularly with duplex stainless steels. And that was what kept them from being commercially available for years after they were developed until they figured out how to adjust the nitrogen levels and the shield gas for welding. So can you talk a little bit about welding and how manufacturers and end users manage that quality process? Yeah. I mean, the, the welding has been an issue. Some of it is not because of that much more difficult to weld, but they're, they're different than austenitics and you worry about different factors. So your goal when you're welding a duplex stainless steel is to produce a weldment that is free of detrimental secondary phases such as sigma and chi, and that also retains proper phase balance, you know, the phase balance between austenite and ferrite, particularly in the heat affected zone is where you worry about that balance. So those are your goals. And to do that, there are welding procedures that can achieve that. End users that are specifying duplex, they have requirements for qualifying weld procedures. And basically, you'll do testing that verifies you avoided detrimental phases. Those test methods would be ASTM 923 for the standard grades and the super duplex grades and the ASTM 1084 for the lean grade. So those test methods are specifically designed to determine whether you have a unacceptable level of these secondary phases. And then depending on your application, you can also call out tighter controls on the austenite ferrite balance in those yeah, welds and, and corrosion testing, right? Yeah, I think across industry, the most end users specify an austenite ferrite balance of 70-30. In other words, no phase can either be higher than 70 or lower than 30%. But depending how critical your end-use environment is, that could be tighter. As far as determining how you got there, you either use metallographic techniques that uh, manually do a point count, or you might use one of the automated imaging uh, analysis there's also the magnetic techniques that will essentially measure a ferrite number. So there are ways to determine your phase balance. Very difficult to do in the heat affected zone. So that issue has always been a problem. 
And this is a topic that I think MTI has addressed quite nicely with their project that looked at uh, guidelines for measuring the amount of ferrite in a duplex stainless steel. That particular project summarizes all the techniques and the shortcomings and their accuracy. And if anyone is wanting more information in, in that area, I would certainly point them in that direction. Yeah, it's a really good MTI project that was published in 2020, and it was titled Guidelines for Measuring the Amount of Ferrite in Duplex Stainless Steels. And that's available on our website. I can put a link to that reference in the show notes. So, Jim, you talked a little bit about the 70-30 limit that, you know, we try to maintain either phase from being greater than 70 or less than 30. Could you talk a little bit about like what would happen if, if the ferrite was over 70% or, you know, what kind of general trends would you expect to see? Yeah. First of all, to maintain the, the expected corrosion resistance for any duplex grade, you would want to keep that balance within that range because you go outside that range, one of the phases is going to be less resistant to the initiation of like a chloride pit. But if you get too much ferrite, obviously you're going to lose toughness because now you have an alloy that's moving towards a ferritic grade. So you lose toughness if you get too much ferrite. If you get too much austenite, there is some worry about you now becoming more susceptible to the stress corrosion cracking. Okay. So realistically, is this one of these things that we specify this? You know, we specify no more than 70-30 out of ratio, but then realistically, does it happen? Or are controls tight enough at manufacturers and welding procedures understood well enough that it's not happening anymore? People aren't failing <laughs> on these tests. Well, when it comes to producing products from the mill, it's usually not an issue because they typically have a final solution anneal, and it's easy to control the phase balance with mill products. Mm -hmm. It's a concern with welding because uh, when you do welding, at times it's hard to control the rate of cooling. So if you're welding a thin section to a a thicker section, it very, could be very difficult, particularly in the heat affected zone. So generally in weld qualification, phase balance is looked at and it is then assumed if you're welding with a qualified procedure, your field welds are going to be okay. That's an assumption. You could destroy some welds and look at the heat affected zone, but basically that's the issue. You know, how do you guarantee your field welds? still have the proper phase balance, particularly in the heat affected zone. And it, right now it's uh, the approach is to have good practice when it comes to qualification of weld procedures. Is the phase balance intentionally altered at times, depending on the, the goals of, of a given project? Like if you know, you're going to have to do some difficult forming, do you try to you know, alter the balance to have more austenite or? I've never heard of people doing that. I guess it could be a, an approach, but I, yeah, at this point, no, I, uh, you know, most of the alloys are produced to the uh, standard ASTMs. We're just trying to keep it between the lines and do as best as we can. Yeah, that, that, that's basically it. In general, and if you specify duplex because you want the properties of duplex, then you need to make sure it's duplex, right? I mean, if, well, there, if, you're really, if you need more of the austenite, but you need more, then you're just going to go up to C276 or... Well, first of all, if you want to tell an alloy to change that, you've got to change the composition. And producers are making these alloys in a large AOD that's probably 120 tons. 
and there's usually not a market for these unique specialty end uses. So that's a problem in, in that approach. Where compositions are adjusted to get more austenite would be in the weld filler because welds can cool rapidly. They generally are adjusted to produce more austenite than what typically you would see in a base metal. Whether you see that much austenite depends how quickly you cool it. But if you look at their composition, they have more austenite formers in their chemical composition in, in the weld filler materials. All right. Well, with that, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The MTI Global Solutions Symposium of 2024 is a technical conference for engineers, leaders, and decision makers in the process industries. Come and join us as we have different educational tracks focused on emerging technologies, sustainability and reliability, non-metallics, bioprocessing and advanced recycling, and knowledge management. Our keynote speakers will be Kurt Graham, the VP of Technology at Floor, speaking on the dawn of energy transition era, early observations, and Sean Uhl, the Director of Sustainability from Comores. He will be speaking on driving sustainability in chemical manufacturing. Overall, it's gonna be a fantastic conference for three days in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, full of opportunities to connect and learn with the best in the process industries. Exhibit space is still available for the Global Solutions Marketplace and registration will open on October 9th. More information can be found on the MTI website and the link will be in the show notes. Welcome back to Corrosion Chronicles. Jim, I'm curious about cast duplex. It seems like cast products would avoid some of the downsides that we see with rot and welded products, but I don't feel like in my own experience, I've seen a lot of cast duplex out there. So uh, I just wanted to get your comments on that. Is cast duplex much of an application or are there, are there drawbacks to it that, I, that I'm not anticipating? No, I mean, they're out there. There's basically a, a cast equivalent for just about every category of, of duplex stainless steel. The modern cast specifications do take advantage of the nitrogen, so that opens the door for welding. I would think they're not used as widely as you might think, only because of lack of knowledge about them. If there's any drawbacks, uh, it would be the same drawbacks that affect rock materials that being, if you're going to cast very thick sections, it's hard to avoid the detrimental secondary phases because the cooling rates could be slow. But basically, cast material, duplex materials are out there and they do get used. And I would guess the reason they're not used more widely might just be lack of knowledge about the cast duplex grades. Interesting. I saw you had one other question I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned the two ASTM test methods for um, you know, assessing duplex, the A1 or 1084 and A923. Those methods are really similar. You mentioned, I think the 1084 is for lean duplex grades, right? Yeah. Did I get that right? So what's the history there? Those two methods come about at the same time because they're they're remarkably similar. No, what, what had happened is... Uh... You know, the 923 came about because there were issues initially when uh, 2205 came on the market. If you remember, the first vintage of 2205 had lower nitrogen, and that particular grade was prone to uh, secondary phases. So 923 was developed to, to ensure that you avoided, you know, a high level of detrimental phases. What happened later when the lean grades came along, 
people realized to market that alloy, end users wanted to feel comfortable that there was no detrimental phases. Now, with the lean grades, the detrimental phase is primarily nitrides in the ferrite phase. And the reason they needed a different specification is because 923, the corrosion test that's used, is too aggressive for a lean grade. There's not enough chrome and moly in it to resist the test solution that's used in 923. So they came out with a uh, inhibited test solution for the lean grades, and that's what's in 1084. Okay. And I, and I just want to get a uh, very shallow depth into those methods. There's, there's basically three test methods identified in there. And, and can you talk about how those, how those are utilized? Like, can you just use any one of the three or just one a screen for the other two? Yeah. But basically the three test methods are the metallographic method, which essentially you prepare a, a sample and, and look at it under an optical microscope for the presence of these bad actors. There's the uh, Sharpie impact test that looks at the toughness and uh, obviously these detrimental phases lower the toughness. So these standards set a minimal toughness. Then there's the corrosion test. So when you have these detrimental phases present, you lose your resistance, particularly to localized chloride attack and the corrosion test methods measure that. So most end users specify the Sharpie impact it, if the thickness is appropriate for Sharpie tests. That could be very difficult to do in very thin products. Or the corrosion test or both. The metallographic method is, is more or less a screening test and very few people, if any, would, would rely just on the metallographic test to, to guarantee their material is free of these bad actors. So Jim, if those test methods are primarily used for the base metal, what additional tests are done to qualify weld procedures? And why do we do so much more work qualifying weld procedures for duplex stainless steels than we do for other alloys? Well, the, the tests also are often used to qualify welds, so that they do get used for that. As far as what tests get used for welds. As I mentioned, the goal is to have a, a weldment that has the proper phase balance and to have a weldment that avoid these bad actors. So basically these tests are used in conjunction with one of the methods for measuring ferrite content. And that's what is used pretty much to ensure your weld achieve those goals. I mean, on top of the normal test methods that are used to qualify a weld, you know, from tensile tests and, and so on. But in addition to those standard tests for qualifying a weld, basically you're doing either a 923 or 1084 and some kind of ferrite measurement. Jim, I'd love to talk for a minute about the upper and lower temperature limits for duplex stainless steels. The upper temperature limits in ASME section eight, division one is defined as 600 degrees F, which is 316 Celsius. European codes govern the upper temperature limit at 250 Celsius, which is 482F. So quite a bit of difference for essentially the same alloys. But a lot of companies end up using having short-term excursions that are above those temperatures. So can you talk a little bit about what happens above those temperatures and what the concerns are and how, how that's managed in industry? 
Yeah, there there is a concern about the maximum service temperature with the duplex grades and the ASME code section eight division one basically sets the maximum service temperature at 600 degrees Fahrenheit for just about all the duplex grades. And when you get above this temperature, the big concern is 885 embrittlement, which happens in the ferrite phase. This essentially is the precipitation of alpha prime. And this is a concern with both ferritic stainless steels as well as the duplex grades, which have half their microstructure as ferrite phase. So the maximum service temperature requirements are, are there to try to prevent loss of toughness during service. The European uh, codes generally have slightly lower range. They also split up base metal versus weldments. So there's a slightly lower temperature for the weldments, and that's where the 250 requirement that you mentioned comes from, Heather. 250C. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's basically a concern related to forming alpha prime, and when that happens, you lose your room temperature ductility. Yep, but I would mention that alpha prime is not, this formation is not something that happens immediately when you hit these magic temperatures. This is a slow process. And so in reality, it's a much grayer window of how long you can be at how high of a temperature, how much alpha prime is formed before it becomes an issue. So this is something that a lot of MTI member companies have seen and, and experienced in their sites. And so we had a project a couple of years ago where we intentionally aged duplex stainless steels to try to form that and try to measure um, with Sharpie impact tests and whatnot that deterioration of properties at elevated temperatures and trying to kind of better understand those bounds of how long you can be there. We currently have a project kind of repeating the tests and looking at it again of welded duplex stainless steels. Vian, mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, 885 embrittlement. Could you speak real quickly about where that name comes from, what that means? Yeah. Yeah. The name comes from the temperature where you form this uh, undesirable alpha prime happens most rapidly at 885 Fahrenheit. So people started calling it 885 embrittlement. And that's where the name comes from. I mean, it starts below that temperature and it happens a little above that temperature, but it happens most rapidly at 885 degrees. Okay, thank you. So can you talk about the lower temperature limits for duplex? Yes, and uh, because the duplex stainless steels have a microstructure that consists basically of about 50% ferrite, they do not have the same um, low temperature toughness as an austenitic stainless steel. And typically the duplex grades are used down to minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. That would be roughly about minus 45 or 46 degrees centigrade. And below that, you could use them, but you really would have to make sure that the base metal and your welds have adequate low temperature toughness to go below that limit. Okay. I wanted to want to ask one question uh, specifically about 2205. With that being the workhorse, it seems appropriate to get into a little bit of detail on that one. So ASTM 240 includes both an S31803 grade and an S32205. 205 grade. Can you talk about those two grades? Yeah. 
the first grade that you mentioned was the first developed 2205, and, and it had the difficulty of potentially uh, suffering from the formation of the sigma and chi quite rapidly because its nitrogen content is basically lower than the 2205. So the, the 2205 that you mentioned was the second generation, which has much better properties as far as maintaining good toughness in as welded sections. The reason that the earlier grade still is in the standard is for the longest time, the 32205 vintage did not have ASME coverage. So to build a pressure vessel, you still had to specify the other UNS number and then ask for the producers to, to increase the nitrogen. Today, the uh, S32205 has coverage in ASME, and the earlier vintage really isn't used or, or specified anymore for construction. And it's only been around because of that problem with uh, building an ASME vessel. So it's more of a legacy thing. You just need to understand it if it's on your prints or on the nameplate. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. Uh, some industries may have that as a specified grade in their own internal standards and never change them. Hmm. But generally, if someone's going to ask for the earlier grade, they also then put on a requirement that the composition matches the S32205. And that gets around the issues of possible loss of ductility and weldments. We've mentioned thickness of cross section a couple of times, you know, which obviously is an issue because of time and temperature and, and uh, control. Are there practical limits on thickness with duplex that people typically apply? And are there rules of thumb that you could offer here? Well, yeah. And, and it really hinges on how rapidly you can quench this stuff. So basically, if you're going to look at a thickness that's two inches or greater, you got to be very careful about qualifying heat treatments and making sure that cooling rates are sufficient to avoid this problem. So it would be rare to see a 10-inch thick duplex stainless steel component because of this issue. Above that thickness, you'd probably be looking at explosion bonding or some other method, I would think. Yeah, or uh, an austenitic grade or something like that. Yeah. You just would have too many problems trying to get the, the center of that cross-section free of these detrimental phases. All right. Interesting. So, Jim, this has been really great talking about how duplex is used in the chemical industry. I just thought we could finish up by talking about its use in architectural, you know, just visual when you want that shiny stainless steel look. How is it being used in society that people would run into even if they're not engineers? Yeah, with the advantages that duplex has, that being its higher strength and its increased corrosion resistance, it has been used in building and architectural applications, structural components, you know, I-beams, things like that, that require some corrosion resistance with its higher strength. That's an ideal application. It's also used in uh, things like railings, or roofing that's close to a marine environment mm -hmm. uh, because of its higher corrosion resistance, a 2205 will resist staining much more readily than a 316. So that's been a, 
application that's growing. And then bridge construction. Surprisingly, there has been several bridges that have taken advantage of the duplex grades and their increased corrosion resistance and strength. So yeah, it is a growing application and I would expect to see more duplex used in building buildings and bridges. And uh, I think duplex rebar has also been developed and is uh, being used now in bridge decks. That's fantastic. Yeah. Any of those places where as corrosion engineers, we've heard those horror stories that occasionally happen where 304, 316 stainless steel has this catastrophic cracking and failure, you know, in an indoor swimming pool from the chlorides that accumulate on the condensation on the roof or any kinds of marine applications. I've wondered about sailboats. You know, you have a lot of those high strength turnbuckles and whatnot. I've wondered if duplex stainless steel would have a place there. You know, I don't know if people are using it on sailboats, but, you know, one application that has moved to it several years ago is desalination, uh, which gets exposed to seawater environments. So, yeah, absolutely. The high pressure piping in, in seawater RO plants almost exclusively now is super duplex, like a 2507 type material, super duplex. Oh, really? They have to go up to super duplex. Yes, because of its exposure to seawater. And the high pressure piping, there's uh, cyclic pressures, so it's increased fatigue strength, make it an ideal material for that application. All right, excellent. That's exciting to hear. And it's just neat to learn a little bit about this niche alloy that's growing in market share and just has some really unique properties that help it to kind of span and fill in gaps where other alloys don't fit quite as well and where it can be a more economical choice. It's definitely a, a good addition to the toolbox for the material engineer. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really just lovely to talk with you and to learn so much from your vast wealth of knowledge about duplex stainless steels. So thanks very much. Thank you for joining us today at, on Corrosion Chronicles. Thanks to everyone for listening and join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.